Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have Jack Shamas, who is president of Selling to Executives and Executive Resources Group. He is a long-term CXO working for major corporations. Jack, would you mind telling us a little bit about your journey to get to where you are today? Of course, would love to, Marcus. Nice to be here. So my background is primarily after business school. I started with the airline business, the TWA. That's back when there was a TWA. Not fully optimized, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a great industry. And then moved over to the publishing and information services company, McGraw-Hill. You probably know McGraw has about about 60 different companies. And it was primarily a financial role in that function. And then moved on to Standard & Poor's where I was the managing director for international operations. So we did a lot of M&A acquisitions. And then I was recruited by Charles Schwab out in the West Coast, go West Young Man, financial yeah. services, where yeah. I was the CFO for the retail world. And maybe the common thing of all these jobs is that I was always directly or indirectly responsible for the buying decision, the committee of CXOs that decided on who to invest with, and if to invest in the first place. And then I moved over to Europe, and I started the company to help salespeople look at the other side of the table. How do we think? How do we decide? How do we select vendors? And that's where we are. Fantastic. Well, I mean, that's a fantastic pedigree. And I know a lot of the audience is interested in selling into the C-suite in enterprise. So you're perfectly positioned to help us do that. So my first question is this, what is it that CXOs are looking for from salespeople? We're looking better for better prepared salespeople to start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mean salespeople who've actually got a plan, done some research and put some thinking in and don't wing it? You get it? (laughs) I'm being a little facetious, but it's true. I mean, we love salespeople. And you may say that doesn't sound logical, but we do. Think about it. Salespeople, consultants, marketing people, all the people who come to us and they pitch and propose products, solutions, services, all these people are working for us for free, trying to figure out what can help us, how to solve our problems, how to reach our objective. They're all working for free. We have to pay our employees. They're costing us money, but those guys were all free. So we love them. But the problem is 80 to 90% of them are wasting our time. And I'm very direct, as you probably know. So <laughs> we open, we'll open the door for them. And that's tough in the first place to get in. But when we open the door and they're not relevant and they're not prepared and they're not convincing and they're not make the case and their message is off, we're not happy and we wasted our time. So let's start with the beginning then. How do they get access to the C-suite? For context, as you probably know, getting access is getting tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher. And we're getting a lot more requests, a lot more channels today to get through. So competition is very tough. And then we, on our end, are very busy and very stressed in a lot of ways. So to get to us, you have to be very relevant. You have to be very specific and Really, to improve your odds, you got to have a reference from somebody that we know, that we trust, that we respect. And after all that, you have to have value when you come in. You have to be really prepared. So you can pick your channel. 
telephone, email, social media. But all that is irrelevant if we don't have the meat, the content. What are the uh, primary drivers that cause a CXO to say, you know, I'm willing to invest my time in a conversation with this salesperson? All I need to see is that there's potential value to us. I need to see that the person is credible, that they know what they're talking about, that they're not coming to us to get information that's already public. That's probably the worst situation. And we know it really quickly, probably the first couple of minutes. We know, I used to have a boss that basically, when he met a salesperson for the first time, he'd have his executive assistant interrupt him after two minutes. No more, two minutes. So you can take the small talk, do whatever you want, but two minutes, she'd interrupt him. And she'd say, you want it in the boardroom. And he'd decide whether he wants to keep going and say, you know, they can start without me. I'll, I'll be there very shortly. Or he could say, sorry, got to go. Bye-bye. Never see you again in a nice, polite way to end it. He wasn't going to waste any more of that company's time or his time on no value. Absolutely. Well, I, I had a client who uh, did that within a few minutes. And he had a second call about 30 to 40 minutes in just in case he'd made a mistake. I admire him because 30 minutes is a lifetime for me if it's not the right meeting. <laughs> you know, we're not paid by a company to waste 30 minutes. That's a really interesting point because I think salespeople forget the value of a CXO's time. If you guys are responsible for 300 million, a billion dollar PL, Every minute is costing thousands of dollars. That's so right. you better have a damn good reason for being there and bring value. And the worst part about it is that not only it's costing us all that money, but it's also costing the salesperson all that time and long-term relationship that they're never going to have. So they've burned their bridges if they're not prepared in that first meeting. So let me ask you this question, because there's a, a very depressing statistic that I've seen borne out that 83% of first meetings never result in a second meeting. For you to invite them back for a second meeting, what type of value do they need to have delivered? Well, let's go back to your statistics for a minute. And uh, I'll come right to that uh, question of what's needed. So you write about the stats somewhere around 80, 85% of CXOs that have been surveyed have said that the meeting I've had with the salesperson was of no value. So of course, they're not going to give him a second meeting. That's logical, right? Now, if you ask the salespeople, the key account managers, about those same meetings or similar meetings on average, 80, 85% will say, oh, they were a really good meeting we had with the CXO. So it's a big... <laughs> yes, right you are. I'm wearing a pair of happy ears for Jacques. People's favorite thing. There's a big perception gap on you know what salespeople think their meeting was and what the executives thought the meetings were. So of course we're not going to invite them again. I would invite them if one thing happened. If in that meeting, by the end of the meeting, I learned something that I didn't know before, that's of value to us. If I didn't get that in the meeting, or potentially get that soon after the meeting then the meeting was a waste of time. And I did it because so, I had to polite, whatever you call it. So given that your boss used to only give them two minutes before he decided that it was going to be a waste of time, 
what has to happen in the first two to three minutes of the meeting for you to realize that you have a sales professional rather than a sales amateur in front of you? One thing, and of course, you have to factor in the culture you're in, but you got to get to the point quickly. So I'll give you one example. If I'm the CFO and somebody's coming into us and he's going to talk to us about stuff that he thinks we're interested in. In my mind, I'm thinking, is he going to be talking to us about expense saves in the organization? Is he going to talk, is he going to, talk to us about revenue increase in the organization? And if so, is it customer acquisition, customer retention, customer satisfaction, size of wallet, all these potential buckets? And in my mind, I don't know which of the buckets he's going to be talking to us about. And the more he helps me focus on the right bucket or buckets, the more I'll be in tune with him or her and get my attention. And I have one rule of thumb I give salespeople. I said, before you go into any meeting, make sure you know what value you're going to bring to us and also make sure what value you need from us to advance the deal. And if the meeting is over and that hasn't happened, it's not a successful meeting. And the second rule of thumb I have is by the end of the meeting, if there isn't a to-do for you, the salesperson, and there isn't a to-do for me, the CXO, that's not a successful meeting. So keep these rule of two rules of thumb in mind to make it a successful meeting and be part of that 15% instead of the 85%. What we teach our clients is that at the beginning of the meeting, you should agree why you're there, what needs to happen by the end for you to then agree next steps. And you need to position yourself as having equal business stature with your CSO prospect because they want to deal with equals. They don't want to deal with someone who is subservient or who's just going to throw up lots of product information because that's not really your arena. You're in the business of solving key strategic business problems. You have massive responsibility. And the point you made about creating equal work at the end is also very important. When we teach people about upfront contracting, there must be mutual agreement, mutual acceptance, mutual understanding, mutual comfort, and mutual commitment. If the commitment is all one-sided, then the salesperson has created a disparity where they put the buyer on a pedestal and they play the role of this subservient child. And that doesn't really uh, augur well for the relationship going forward because then they're bending over backwards and jumping through hoops without creating any real value. All they're doing is they're acting as a gopher. So when that does happen, how did you respond to salespeople? So a couple of things you mentioned. And the first one, as you pointed out, is setting an agenda. Very important to set an agenda at the beginning of the meeting. But don't have 17 items on it because you're missing the point here. Two items, three items maximum is what we would like to see. And when you set the agenda, what have you done? As you pointed out, you agreed on, in principle at least, what you'll be talking about and discussing. And if you get interrupted after one item and you didn't get to the second one, it makes it much easier to come back to me on that second item because we agreed we're going to discuss it. So it makes that second meeting or access much easier. 
The second thing is that you got to be able to be flexible with that agenda. So one thing you got to ask us, which I suggest, is always ask us, is this agenda what you're looking to accomplish in this meeting? Is it acceptable to you? What is less relevant? And what else do you want to add to the agenda? So now it's not just your meeting, the salesperson. It's our meeting, both of us. And that's really important. The second thing relating to equals, that is a big, big, big thing. A lot of salespeople ask me, well, you know, we're going to be meeting the N minus two or the N minus one. The person has a huge responsibility. They don't know us. We're coming in. They have the budgets. They have the power. And we're just trying to sell stuff. That can't be equal. And I tell them, well, you can think of it this way. But I like to think just the opposite. And I confide something in them from my real life experience. When I met, even as a CFO of a large company, when I met salespeople for the first time, guess who was the person who was a little bit more nervous than usual? Me. Why? I have my problems. I have my objectives. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the solutions. If they figured out what these objectives are, which quite often is public information, what my problems are, which they can figure out quite often, and they look at their products, their solutions, their services, and how those can help us, how they help others in the industry, and how they can put it all together, problem, solution, value, differentiation, they come in to me and they have the whole story. I don't have it. I just got my problems. So who's got the advantage in this conversation? But if they're not ready, meeting is over. And the other thing to bear in mind is the buyer has the commodity. It's called cash. If you can help them solve a problem, and in fact, one of the things that I teach my clients to do, particularly if they're selling to a publicly listed company, is go into the annual report and accounts. Section 1B is all the blue sky thinking, and I tend to exaggerate and say the lies that the executive team tell to the market about what's going to happen. And Section 1B is filled with all the caveats as to why they're not going to grow 74% in the DAC market and why they're not going to manage to roll out the product on time. If you can help them solve one of those problems in Section 1B of the annual report and accounts, you're their hero. But again, this is another really important thing. I think sometimes salespeople try and position themselves as the hero. They need to be the guide, um, and they make the customer or the prospect the hero of the story. And if you make it all about yourself as a seller, and your company, and your products, and who your investors are, and all of that stuff. That's going to switch people off, isn't it? Definitely. Uh, I am not interested in how big the company is, and how many references they have, and uh, how profitable they are. I'm interested in how profitable they can make us. How profitable, what is it in, in it for us? That's our job. That's reality. You know, we used to have, this is a uh, you know, when I chaired the capital committee, we used to have salespeople come in and one of their final pitches of why us, they would say, well, we own 70% of the market in this space of ERP or CRM, or 70%. And we're thinking, that's very impressive. Very good. And I ask him a question. And I say, well, the 30% that you don't have, just out of pure curiosity, companies with Pretty smart people, boards, executives, have selected other competitors other than yourself. Why? And they think about it, they don't have a good answer. Like, 
Why didn't you think about it? Now, I'm not looking to be the bad guy. I'm just looking to understand the plus and the minus. I want you to be objective and fair. If you tell me, well, you know, they probably picked them because they're the incumbent and it's much easier and it's not disruptive, or they picked them because they were in China and we weren't, or because they have a reference very close to your company, or I want to hear something, but I want to hear a good reason for us. So this then brings me to the next question, because I think where a lot of salespeople are empty suits is that they have a tendency to rush to the presentation far too soon. And in medicine, there is a very valuable maxim, which is prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. And in the traditional selling model, you qualify loosely for BANT, so budget authority need and time. Then you move into the show up and throw up routine where you lay out your market stall and you do the dog and pony show talking all about why your carbungulator is better than the defibrillator on the rippets and yada, 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 without finding out whether you give a damn. Why is it so few salespeople either question well or listen well? The listening part is one that uh, really they need to improve on in general. Even though they go through a lot of training on listening, I'm not sure why sometimes they don't take cues from us and really build on that because that's what we're really trying to focus on. And in terms of when you mention the, all these things we have, I call it the spray and pray. Yep. <laughs> you don't like this? Okay, we're going to give you something else. Do you like that? We don't want to be throwing stuff at us. We want us to be listened to, and we want you to be a partner to us and help us think with you and share your wealth of experience so that we learn more and we work with you to get to the right solution for us, even, even if initially or sometimes it doesn't mean selecting you. That's how you're going to get a trusted advisor status at some point in your life when you're honest, objective, and prepared. And you've hit the nail right on the head, which is that it's our job to answer two critical questions. Can we help? And are we the best people to help? That's right. Because if the answer to either of those questions is no, it is incumbent on us as the seller to get out of Dodge. We need to then say, Jacques, got to be honest, what you're looking for isn't what we do best. Or we're the wrong company to help you. Let me refer you to my biggest, most direct competitor because they are absolutely right for you. And this is where I see a major problem in sales. I believe that one of the biggest problems is that salespeople are not taught values and ethics. Why is that? I wish I had the answer for you on that one. <laughs> but they should always have the integrity to do what's right for us. And it is tough. Don't misunderstand me. They're under pressure to meet their targets. They're under pressure to deliver quite often quarterly. So it's easy for us to critique, but that's our job again, to do what's best for us. So if they do what's best for us too, they're on our side. And in the long run, they come out way ahead, way ahead. And it shouldn't be that difficult. I, I know even us with the, our workshops and keynotes and sessions we do, a lot of companies ask us to do stuff that we're not the best at. And we tell them, look, we can do it, but we don't want to do it. We can refer you to others who could do it better than us. 
So if you're talking about just doing an account plan or doing a negotiation session, we've done it obviously in our job, but we, you know, our sweet spot is selling to the C-suite and dealing with the C-suite, accessing the C-suite and winning deals with the C-suite. We stick with that and everything else we can cover. But if you really want to get into it in terms of a little deeper, go to somebody else. And people come back to us and say, what's your advice on that? And we like that. This, again, is another interesting question because one of the things I teach my clients is that you prospect for choice. If you had a full sales pipeline, then you would not feel the need to stay in a sale where you are not the best position provider. And people forget this because um, if you don't have a full sales pipeline, then that messes with your head as a salesperson because you need to hit your quota. Two quarters in a row, you miss your quota, there's a very high probability you're out. You create the pressure for yourself because of the work you have not done 12 weeks beforehand. And what I see a lot of enterprise salespeople doing is they get wrapped up in a deal and then they stop prospecting. And so they end up with feast and famine, feast and famine. And these are the elephant hunters. Now, from an executive position, I don't want elephant hunters unless they're going after the herd. If they can bring the elephant consistently and they can plan bringing me the elephant, that's great. What I don't want are surprises. I don't want to suddenly have some bluebird sale come in that we weren't expecting. So we're not prepared for it. And as a result, we then end up having to put out a lot of fires because we haven't planned for it. And this is where we really need to tighten up as salespeople selling to the executive and enterprise levels which is we need to think like generals. Enterprise selling is cat herding. It's about being able to make sure that we have the right people having the right conversations at the right time, in the right way, with the right people. And marshalling all these different resources that may be across multiple countries, multiple divisions, in different departments, and making sure that we're engineering it so that Marketing is speaking to marketing. Legal is speaking to legal in a good, timely manner. So one of the things I see a lot is, and this is where enterprises really get their teeth stuck into unprepared vendors, is they will say that they're going to go ahead subject to references or subject to proof of concept. And then the salesperson goes out and tells their marketing department. Their marketing department tells the world that they haven't actually got a final deal. And this is when the lawyers and procurement really get their teeth stuck in. So again, I have to ask the question, how is it that despite the fact we see that pattern happening time and time again, it persists? And as you point out, there are now a lot more stakeholders involved in strategic decisions than before. So the C-suite is a little bit more crowded than it was five or 10 years ago. You have roles such as the chief digital officer, chief data officer, chief innovation officer, chief transformation officer, et cetera, et cetera. In addition to the usual suspects of CEO, CFO, COO, CIO, CMO, uh, CPO, et cetera. And what you have to do, as you pointed out, you have to be able to access and have messages to that executive in their language, to what interests them, their KPIs, including possibly 
what they're compensated on, which quite often you can find from some 10K or 10Q or 20F for EMEA. And you need to basically see what's in it for them. So if you're talking to the CMO, chief marketing officer, what does your solution or service do to help them be able to get more customers or retain more customers or grow, period? If you talk to the CFO, it could be, what are you doing? What are, same solution, same service. What does it do to help improve the margin or reduce expenses? If you're talking to the R&D person, what does it do to put products out to market faster? So you got to match whatever your proposal is to that particular executive. It's going to be the relevant executive. And you've talked about timing. Timing is very important, too. It's not about the salesperson timing in the quarter. It's about our timing. Absolutely. The C-suite doesn't care about the salesperson's target or their quota or how far behind they are or whether they're going to get the trip to Barbados. That's right. The only reason I'm going to listen and consider your timing is at the end of your quarter, you can come to me and say, if you sign that deal before the end of the quarter, we're going to give you a 20% discount. So what you basically said is we're going to give you more value. That's my incentive. But that's that's not what I recommend. Avoid discounts. You lost the story here. Again, I, I have a real bee in my bonnet about discounting. From a sales perspective, it is a sin akin to incest and murder. Salespeople who go out- Mass murder. Yeah, absolutely. If you make a 30% margin- and you discount by 10%, you have to sell double the next time to stand still. It's an act of absolute idiocy. If you make a 30% uh, margin and you increase your rates by 10%, you can afford to lose 24% of your customer base. Yay! So sell more to fewer people for higher margins so you can service them and love them to death. And you know, Marcus, when people discount to us, it's a red flag. It's a red flag, and you can guess why. Because it basically says that they're not as convinced of the huge value they bring to us, and therefore they need to give us a discount for us to see the value. So either they're not convincing us of the value, or there is no value. That's possible too. And the other thing is, I believe that if you discount your rate without uh, getting an equal or value concession back in return, so if you make a unilateral concession, what you've just told the CXO is I lied about my price. Or you lied about your value, but something is not right here. There is a really interesting thing. I mean, in tech, you see this all the time. If you buy before the end of the quarter, we'll give you 15% off. What that does for operations, in my experience, is it creates a bunching condition where everybody is buying at the end of the quarter, which means that anyone who's doing an implementation at the beginning of the next quarter is basically waiting on anybody who is available, which means that you don't get the A players. So if you're smart, what you'll say is, Shaq, I appreciate that you're looking for a discount and you're going to wait till the end of the quarter. Can I make a suggestion? If you go ahead now, two months before the end of the quarter, you will get all of my A players working on your project. Now tell me something, which is more important? Saving one and a half million or making sure that this strategic project that's going to deliver 200 million is delivered by the best people available in the market. You pick. Very much so. Not only that, but also, if you wait till the end of the quarter, guess what? You wasted three months worth of value. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, so in addition to what you mentioned, you also had this opportunity cost, opportunity value that you didn't get. You know, we ask we ask salespeople quite often in uh, some of the presentation. We say, well, uh, are those benefits going to hold if we decide to do this project uh, six months, eight months from now? And they say, yeah, we're you know, they're still going to be there. And they forget to tell us that all this period we're not getting the benefit. And you know. It's really interesting. I was coaching a client of mine last quarter, and they are comparable in terms of feature and benefit set. But the competitor takes five and a half times more resource to implement, maintain, and upgrade. My client is more expensive by about 18, 20% at the front end. But over the course of five years, this is the equivalent of over $10 million on the deal. So being able to save a tiny amount up front in terms of the overall uh, investment, I think it's about 180,000, they're going to look at five and a half additional resources over five years. So that's the equivalent of 27 and a half full-time employees plus an extra 10 million. And the salespeople who are managing this account uh, or managing this sale didn't have the nous to have that conversation with the CEO, the CFO, or purchasing to make them their ally because the end user had just brought in a chief information security officer from outside who had used the competitor's product. And so he was going with the easy option with what's familiar. But salespeople really need to think strategically. You need to think like a general. Napoleon, one of my heroes, won the Battle of Austerlitz two years before any French soldier left French soil. He decided which general would surrender to him at which village, and he had planned that out. And in an enterprise environment, you need to be savvy. You need to be thinking about your territory and the accounts, identifying the opportunities, uh, the qualification process, solution co-development, getting the customers, stakeholders, fingerprints all over the deal, how you advance the sale, managing that relationship, managing those relationships within the organization. And then the biggest area of opportunity is actually in service delivery. When you turn an account into a marketplace, but not many salespeople are good at that. They're too transactional. Now, from a CXO perspective, how does that come across when you have a transactional salesperson rather than a strategic salesperson? The transactional sales, if they're not huge amounts of money outside of limits of authority, you know, we let them be handled by middle management or by procurement because it's a commodity, as you pointed out. They're transactional quite often. I want to buy a machine and all machines are the same. It's a matter of capacity and price, if you were to think of it in very basic terms. Yeah. But strategic investments, we need to get involved in because it's not just about price, it's about value. It's about all those things that need to be identified and need to be quantified sometimes and need to be understood from us. And they need to explain it to us in our terms, in our language. And people forget that even though companies, we're talking about public companies, they report on a quarterly basis their earnings, EPS, their growth, and they're judged by analysts quarterly, they're still, the mission is a long-term mission. We start off with anywhere from a three-year to five-year strategic plan that we're accountable to, that we're measured by, that this is really our ultimate goal, to commit 
and to achieve the strategic plan that we have communicated to the public and to our investors. And we're going to live by that plan and not by a quarterly plan. So you know, we're going to have bumps up and down on the quarterly stuff, but we're still going to be judged on the longer term. And they need to think likewise, what's best for us strategically. If you talk about the end of the year, yeah, the end of the year comes, but in January 1, it's the same company. We still got the same strategic plan. (laughs) (laughs) The more you think like us, the better you're going to be aligned with us and the more we're going to work with you. So let me ask you this, because this is a question that comes up a lot. What's the real role of procurement when uh, you are a a C-suite salesperson? Very good question. You probably can guess a lot of these CXO roles have evolved over time, including the chief procurement officer. Before, the CPO was more, you know, just give me the cheapest price. Now the chief procurement officer and his or her team are a lot more savvy. They're getting involved into the business side. In fact, some companies hire CPOs from the business side in order to bridge the gap in perception. So I'm not saying don't work with the procurement people. I'm saying partner with them, but show them the same value outside of price that you would show the CXOs. Now, having said that, if everything being equal, you're trying to get into an account, don't start with procurement. (laughs) (laughs) Go as high as you can with the reason, because quite often, if you come to me, and there are lots of examples, if they come to me and you say, this is a proposal I have in your uh, data center, for example, and they come to me as the COO. First question I have in my mind is, why are you coming to me? Why not talk to the CIO? Why not talk to somebody in the CIO's group? You better have a good reason why me, okay? So you have to always know why you're going to that particular exec. The higher, the better. Don't avoid procurement. Partner with them. Because the perception is that all they care about is the cut price, which is partially true because quite often they're measured and compensated on reductions in price. But manage it. This is really interesting. There is a methodology in procurement called PCOS, and it's called Price Improvement and Cost Optimization Strategy. It was developed by the guy who used to be the head meat buyer for Walmart. So he had the milk of human kindness flowing through his veins, buying from abattoir owners. And then he went to General Motors. And what's really interesting is it uses 120 different tactics before you get to the negotiating table to drive down price, improve terms. So by the time the seller is at the table, all the flesh has been cut off the bone. And they're so invested because they've forecast it for months. They've been dragged along emotionally. They've strategically engaged with your management. It's so smart. And the problem is that salespeople don't get to recognize when they're being played. And because they haven't got the nerve to see themselves as having equal business stature with the C-suite, then they find themselves in the place of assignment. And even if they do get to the C-suite, They allow themselves to get shunted. Tell about the best experiences you've had with salespeople selling to you in the C-suite who understood how to contract with you, that even though you are sending them elsewhere in the organization, that they had access route back to you. 
Well, okay. One one example with one of our companies is, and that was actually one of the better examples because I, even I was impressed. This was back in uh, financial services where the salesperson was recommended to meet with me. And he meets with me and he was, I want to talk to you about the data centers. We had four call centers across the U.S. And he goes, right now you have four data centers and you have about 300, 400 people per data center. And you're taking, it's like customer contact center as well. He said, you're taking calls and do some transactions, but they're all working in silos. And because of the peaks and valleys, because they were spread out across the U.S. with the time zones, he goes, you have excess capacity sometimes and you have not enough capacity some of the time. And I understand that you're about to open a fifth call center because of the growth that you're experiencing. And we have some type of solution. He says some technology solution, not I think I'm going to waste my time. He said, we have some kind of technology solution that we've done with other service firms, financial services firms, where we could put all these four centers together and they're working like one big center together. So whenever you have too much capacity in one, it goes to the other centers and vice versa when you don't have enough. So we really kind of like balance everything. And as a result, you need less capacity. You need less, fewer call centers but you have the same output and it really saves you a lot of resources and better response, better access for your clients, better satisfaction. And you obviously don't have to build another call center probably for another two to three years. And I was out there, I'm thinking, let's prove it. <laughs> I had him talk to you know people in the CIO groups, people in finance group, people in operations group pretty quickly. And sure enough, they had, the proof points, they had the validations, and it saved us from building a call center for another two and a half years. And it was a very, very high return project. We signed a deal in about six weeks, by the way, $26 million deal. Very good. And you know, that doesn't happen every day, but the person was prepared. He kind of knew strategically it had to go higher than just one area of the company, like the CIO or the CEO. He see, it was kind of a strategic investment from the corporate side. And uh, what gets us to continue talking to these people is because they think big, they think strategic, and they're honest. So what is it that salespeople miss routinely that really drives you crazy? I'd have to go back to the preparation. You know, we put out a lot of information, and I'd be the last person to say they should spend their time on reading all the stuff we put out. Definitely not. But I'll tell you two things that they don't do, that they should do, that's very little investment of their time and very high return. If it's a public company, they should really listen to the quarterly call that we have. After every quarter, we have a call with the analysts and the press, so to speak, that basically says how we did and a little bit of how, what we're looking to do. And then we get these analysts that ask us questions. These are not congratulations, thank you. These are tough questions quite often. How come you didn't do as well as the rest of the industry? Why is this increasing faster than what you had projected? Why did you miss on this? Why, you know, they're really judging us, and those are pain points that they can uncover. So they should listen. This is a one hour maximum meeting call. 
that even if you don't listen in live, you have it recorded later on on a public site or elsewhere. Invest one hour a quarter to listen to that call. That's one. Two, quite often they don't look at the Form 10K for U.S. companies and 20F for international companies that do business globally uh, in the U.S. And in there, you have two things that are really important. One, it gives you what executive compensation is tied to. You know, what are the KPIs that these top executives are tied to? And quite often, it's stuff that they can influence and impact positively. So you can express stuff like revenue growth and margin, but there could be stuff relating to sustainability. It could be relating to customer satisfaction, things like that, that they can impact that really, if they can show us how it impacts it positively, it affects us directly. And the last thing in those documents is there's a section called risk factors. The risk factors are stuff that we basically have to identify potential risk to the business. If you help us mitigate or reduce these risks, that's important to us. And you can judge the risk factor by almost the order they put in. If it's first on the list, <laughs> it's higher than if it's last on the list. <laughs> and people quite often, salespeople usually go through the annual report and they stop there. But people have got to remember the annual report is put out usually by marketing with some of our information. The 10K and the 20F is put out by lawyers <laughs> and us. So guess which one has more relevance to us? <laughs> so this is maybe a total of three to four hours a quarter that they can invest and get key critical information that 95% of salespeople do not go through. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so let me ask you this, questioning. I firmly believe that your credibility comes from the questions that you ask, not the information that you give. Definitely. Now, questions in my mind from a salesperson should not be about gathering information or even helping you to understand. They should deliver insight to the prospect. It should help the prospect see their world through a different lens and say, you know, I've never seen it like that. Or, wow. That's a great question. Let me think about that. That's right. If if you can ask those sorts of questions to the CXO, that causes you to differentiate because you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. That's right. That's right. And Marcus, you can imagine that a lot of people ask some bad questions. So I won't get into them because they'll just upset me. (laughs) <laughs> well, what keeps you up at night? You know, we we had some some people ask us, oh, "Can you tell us about your strategic goals over the next three years?" Can't you read? So all these questions try to avoid, try to prepare the questions, as you point out, that give us insights, that make us think, that make us have an idea of possibilities, potential value, brainstorming with us. That's all good. So if you have a solution or a service that has helped others in the industry. You can talk to us about the types of solutions that executives select and the pluses and minuses of each. And which ones do we tend to favor more and why? That tells you that you are knowledgeable. You know what's in the market. You know what's good, what's bad. And you try to talk to us about what's best for us. 
and you want to know a little bit of what our criteria, that kind of, it's a discussion. It's not a presentation. Absolutely. Again, this is the key. It's a conversation. It's a two-way dialogue where you're both feeding off one another's responses and you're providing value each time you contact with that CXO. And again, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that you can just check in. Their time is way too precious and too valuable. If every time you contact a CXO, you deliver real value, they will welcome your call. They will look at the caller ID and they'll say, I'll take that one. But if all you're doing is pitching, and again, this is an, another element. Do you know the whole concept of the QBR, the quarterly yeah. business review? If all you use the QBR for is to put out your market store and pitch another product, that relationship is very short-lived and you will end up very quickly being shunted down the food chain into an operational function with someone with manager in their title, not vice something or other, and not chief. Uh, it will be someone with manager who will have no decision-making authority other than to say no to you. That's so, right. So when you talk about the quarterly business review, you know, obviously we did them constantly every quarter. And you, know, you have something called the balance scorecard or the report cards. Those are facts. Those are results. That's fine. It tells you a story. Now, Let's look at those and interpret them, analyze them, understand them, and see what we need to do to be better and make it better. That's the discussion. That's the insight. That's the analysis. That's what we want the salespeople to do for us, to help us. I think it often will go further as well, because so often reporting is using lag indicators. The horse has already bolted. You've already hit the iceberg by the time a lot of that data comes out. Um, focus your attention, focus your questions, focus your insight, your research on leading indicators, That's trends right. that are going to affect the C-suite in the next 12, 18, 36 months. Because that's the stuff that they have their eyes set on. That's where their sights are. Um, it's not on what's happening today. That's a day-to-day. -day. And by the time it gets to, you know, you talk to the C-suite, that's already happened. They need to be planning ahead. And if you as the salesperson selling into the C-suite are not helping them have insight and visibility of what's coming down the pipe, then you're very short-lived. And it's really important that you understand, you know, someone like Jack, who's spent a lifetime, or certainly the last, what, 15, 20 years of your career, at the top level of major global international conglomerates, you don't have the time to be listening to somebody who's just going to peddle product. No one cares. That's like showing photos of your ugly children to strangers. <laughs> They'll be polite for two photographs. <laughs> yeah. We don't care about stuff that we already know. That's no value to us. And if you're trying to impress yourself by repeating us, that doesn't help either. You know, in our QBR, back to that, sure, you have results that happen. But even in the QBI, you have projections of what is expected to happen. And we expect you, as you point out, to know a little bit of the trends and the issues and the challenges of what's going on in terms of the view from the top going forward. And how are you going to help us so that that direction is even better with your solution or doesn't get us into hot water? And that's stuff that is 
business and logical. It's not intended to be technical and complicated. Make it simple and have think normally. If there were you really your business, if you were the CEO of that company, what challenges do you have? What have you seen that other companies in that industry have? This is the stuff we want to know, stuff that we don't know again. Something struck me just then. It's a question I should have thought of earlier, so I apologize. What I'm interested in is how the board, the C-suite, is so often siloed. And you have this conflict that goes on. Finance with everybody, IT with everybody, sales versus marketing, and so forth. And again, as a salesperson, learning to navigate the complexity of those relationships and not get caught up in the politics, but still be able to engineer a deal that you're going to get at least a majority, if not unanimous consensus, to support. Because if your deal is not one, two, or three in terms of the most important things to deal with in that purchasing meeting, then chances are it's going to get put on the back burner till the next time. So what advice would you give to salespeople to be able to manage the complexity of the C-suite silos and politics to make sure that they're getting their deal, not only in front of the right people at the right time, but that it's going to the top of that pile and people are all buying in? So you make a good point. We, the C-suite, don't always agree. We don't always get along. We have conflicts. Think of marketing and sales. Think of finance and marketing. Marketing wants to spend the money, you know, <laughs> marketing spends it, sales brings it in, you know, CFO tries to manage it. We are working for the same goal, the big goal, but we don't agree on the how, okay? So as a salesperson, you need to recognize that we have different interests, different responsibilities, different KPIs. And when we work with the in workshop with sales team, we do role play so that you come to me as a CFO, talk to me. You come to me as a CMO, talk to me. And you kind of have to be ready in terms of what's important to me and how does your proposal impact what's important to me. And we challenge them so that you can have this different discussions with different executives. And that you have to be very ready for, to know what's important to me, what's important to him, what's important to her, and get as many on the C-suite as possible on your side. Get to meet with them, get to convince them, so that when there's a final decision being made, because decisions now are a lot more collaborative, there are more hands that are making the decision, you want all of these to be friends of yours. You don't want one person to be against you because one enemy is too many, and you can never have enough friends at the C-suite. <laughs> Excellent. Jack, I'm conscious of the time. We've done uh, nearly an hour together, and I'm very grateful for your time today because I know how busy you are. And it's wonderful. Help me understand something then. There's a final question in this. From the value that salespeople really bring to you, it's obviously helping you understand something that you don't know, delivering value through insight, through your questioning, or helping you solve a strategic problem. For you to keep coming back, and speaking to that salesperson, to have them as the first person you pick up uh, the phone to when you have a problem. What do they need to do consistently that 
makes them, positions them as someone you will trust with the most confidential, most important information. They have to think big, big picture. They have to be prepared in the sense of what do they have for me that's of value to me? They need to remember my role and my function or what are my KPIs? And they need to give me an idea of potential value, stuff they have that I don't have that I could use to my benefit. Now, it sounds like a lot, but it can be done very quickly, very fast, and very lightweight. In conclusion, what you need to understand if you're selling to the C-suite is these people are human beings. They are often quite scared because they're under a lot of pressure and things don't go smoothly. They have problems that they have to deal with. They are not always in agreement with their peers. And what they don't have is a surfeit of time. Time is precious to them. It's probably, it's certainly more precious than money. And what they're looking for is value. And they want that value consistently. And what they don't want is for, to have someone pitch. They don't want someone to come in and waste their time. And they want someone to get to the point quickly so that they can make a decision as to whether or not it makes sense to continue that conversation. And they will then open the doors for you if it's in their best interest, because people buy for their reasons, not your reasons. Is that a pretty fair summary? That's a very good summary. And you know, maybe since you're speaking of time and since access is really important, don't ask for a one-hour meeting when you try to get a CXO for the first time. Ask for a 20-minute meeting. It's one of the tips I give them. Because basically, it says, if you ask for 20 minutes, most likely you know what you want to say, and you're going to say, you're going to get to the point very quick, get value. And, you, and I can find 20 minutes. I can't find 45 minutes in an hour. But the way you summed it up is very nice. The last thing I will mention relative to value is, think of the iceberg. The top of the iceberg is some value. But the big value is underneath. You need to help me see this big, big value that I don't see. Absolutely. A lot of companies can show that. So, Jack, thank you for that. And a couple of questions. Who's influencing you in terms of what you're reading, blogs, podcasts, uh, videos that you're watching? What's the stuff that you're feeding your mind with? Well, I have a habit of reading all the business and uh, international papers first thing in the morning online. So, you know, things like the garden. You the day depressed. Yeah. You know, I just like to take about an hour and a half in the morning and go through all the presses. Not all of them, but, you know, the key ones, uh, Wall Street Journal the New York Times, the Guardian, the Financial Times, because they have some really nice, not just the articles, but the comments, okay? And then the usual suspects uh, on CNN, <laughs> a few other, you know, Bloomberg, nothing political, it's just the business stuff of it. So I enjoy that because entertaining is funny, it keeps you. And then in terms of stuff going on in digital transformation, since companies are very challenged on not the strategy, but the implementation on how to really succeed in their digital transformation. Uh, Any like, thought leaders that you'd recommend people read or follow? There's so many out there, I can't really just pick one. But I, I'd say, you know, a couple of books that are useful and good is one uh, literally called Selling to the C-Suite, which is a classic. And that's by Nick Reed and Steve Blisser. And uh, it's really a very good book, very practical to the point on access, on uh, the meeting itself, on messaging, 
on the value. I highly recommend it. There are a couple of others that are pretty good. The one very easy to remember, the little red book is selling. Yeah, forgetting that. That's right, exactly. And uh, the one about access relating to how to get a meeting with anyone, that's Stu Heineke, the cartoonist. Yeah, that's very good. I mentioned those because salespeople don't want to spend a lot of time reading. They want to have fun reading. And they're all easy reading, practical reading, and they're useful. And you can use some of the examples in real life. I will make one point there that in my experience, the salespeople who read prolifically and consistently tend to perform much, much better than those who don't. Not all, but... I have a view that most people leave school and become functionally illiterate, and that's a mistake. And if you look at CEOs, they're typically reading a book a week, and you should be reading what they're reading. Let me ask you this slightly cheeky question. If you had your time again and you had a golden ticket and you could go and advise the idiot 23-year-old Jack, what advice would you give him to avoid a lifetime of misery and stupidity? Be true to yourself. Be passionate about what you do and always think what's good for your client and you'll do very well, but enjoy what you do. (laughs) Absolutely. I have a belief that you're dead for a very long time. And if you're not enjoying what you're doing, that's a sin and it's an absolute waste. So uh, great advice. Jacques Shamas, thank you very much. How can people get hold of you? Well, they can look at our website, selling to executives.com and my contact information is on there i am jacques at selling to executives.com that's my email very simple and uh, they can contact me and also my phone number is on it brilliant jacques Chamas, thank you so much this has been an absolute joy packed full of insights if you're interested in coming on to the inquisitor podcast and being a, a victim of my interviewing process then i would welcome your contact contact me via linkedin via direct message or email me at marcus.kauke at sandler.com and if there's someone that you'd love to be interviewed by me then please by all means recommend them connect us on linkedin and happy selling have a great week bye-bye thank you very much marcus thanks everybody bye-bye